Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of torture, gore, animal cruelty, and violence against minors, as well as discussions of misogyny, sexualized violence, sexual abuse, homophobia, and hate crimes against the Romani. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Katerina was lost in the storm. Her mother had always told her young daughter to stay away from the Countess's land, that she must not go there unless she was summoned. But Katerina was 13 now. She was no longer a child. And as the year 1600 dawned, she decided to defy her mother and seek her fortune in the castle on the hill. There were no signs to tell her where the Countess's land ended and the town began. No stone walls or roads, just a creeping path toward a mountain hidden in the clouds. She was soaked to the bone when a woman appeared out of the mist. Katerina opened her mouth to apologize, to explain, but the woman only hugged her close. She asked if Katerina would like some warm milk. Tired and thirsty, Katerina could not refuse. The woman placed a scrap of fabric around Katerina's eyes to keep her safe from prying spirits. Katerina was guided into the castle. She did not see her surroundings change, but felt the air grow tight around her. There was no bench for her to sit on. She was to wait with her back against a cold metal wall. The other woman would go and get the milk. As Katerina waited, a strange sound rose up around her, metal creaking. It seemed to be coming from everywhere. Something sharp started to poke into her skin, and then another point, another. She yelled for the woman to come back. No voice answered her, but the creaking of the metal grew louder. The points in her skin deepened. She willed herself not to cry, but it was no use. Her body was crying too. Tiny droplets of blood dripped down onto the floor as the metal spikes tore through her flesh. She was more lost than ever before. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the ruins of Jack Dietz Castle, the historic home of Elizabeth Bathory, Hungary's so-called blood countess and discover why to this day 
It's haunted. If you've heard of Vlad Dracula, you've probably heard of Erzsébet or Elizabeth Bathory. The Hungarian countess is one of Romania's darkest legends. She was accused of the murder and torture of 650 women and girls, but she's best known for the rumor that she bathed in the blood of virgins in an attempt to maintain her youth. The lion's share of these atrocities are said to have been committed at Czechtit's castle, a 13th century Romanesque fortress in the former Hungarian Empire, which is now modern-day Slovakia. Built on a settlement dating back to prehistoric times, Czechtit's castle was renovated repeatedly to maintain a Gothic and then Renaissance style. Its highly defensible position with 360-degree views made it an excellent location for the protection of the trade route to Moravia in what is now the Czech Republic. Elizabeth Bathory and her husband Count Ferenc Nadozdi were gifted Czechtit's castle and its surrounding villages by Ferenc's family when they were married in 1575. Ferenc became the head of the Hungarian army three years into their marriage, which kept him away from home for the majority of the year. At the age of 19, Elizabeth took over the management of her husband's lands, which included Czechtit's castle and its 17 villages. It is said that Ferenc's absences led to boredom, which caused Elizabeth to seek out entertainment where she could, including the torture and murder of her servants, and the peasants she was supposed to protect and provide for under feudal law. While violent abuses of power were common in this era, it was whispered that the glamorous but standoffish countess was far more inventive than her contemporaries. Anna wanted to be useful, not just to her family, but to the whole village. She had learned what she could of medicine from her mother, but there was always more to know. And the key to getting that information was to join the Countess's household. She'd heard some stories about what life behind the castle walls was like. The Countess was an exacting mistress. And while she was open to students from any walk of life, sometimes the students weren't always prepared for her more unusual teaching methods. Anna was afraid. The stone walls were imposing. She had seen girls walk through them and never leave. She didn't want to disappear as they had, but she needed the information that the Countess possessed. Which herbs to use when someone was sick, which poultices treated a wound the best, how to recover for work after a long illness. So she asked her family to offer her services to the Countess and prayed that everything would work out well. In a few years' time, she would be back in the village, tending to anyone who needed help. The Countess accepted Anna's help, and for the first few weeks of her service, everything went as it should. She helped around the castle and spent a few hours each day learning from the Countess about the special properties of different herbs. Every night, she ate a meal of potatoes and sausages with the servants and the Countess's other apprentices. The servants held lively conversations with her, but the apprentices kept to themselves. They spoke in whispers to each other occasionally, but never to Anna. 
She assumed it was because many of them came from wealthy families. They considered themselves to be of a higher station. It was quiet when Anna laid in her bed of straw. Quiet, but not silent. In the still of the night, she could have sworn she'd heard a whisper in the hollow cold. It sounded neither young nor old, male or female, but its words were unmistakable. Be careful what you eat. In the morning, however, she asked the other girls if they had heard the same thing, and they just stared at her blankly. She convinced herself it was just a dream. That day, she made her first mistake. Anna misplaced one of the herbs before the end of a lesson, a small bottle only inches away from where it needed to be. And yet, this one tiny slip-up filled her with dread. She prayed that no one had noticed. The second she could sneak away, she tiptoed back into the drying room and pushed the bottle back into place. She was light on her feet and quick. Her fear subsided. But there was no food waiting for her that night. The Countess called Anna in to eat with her. There was only one place setting at the table. The Countess sat down and began to feast. Two servants held Anna in place. A third pulled out a stinging nettle. They slid the slim branch under Anna's fingernail. Anna started to yelp. The servant pushed it in further. A thousand pricks of pain stabbed through the skin around her nail. She pleaded for it to stop. The servant lodged the nettle in place and then moved on to the next finger. The nerves in her arms throbbed from her futile struggling. The sinew and muscles pulling so tight she feared they would snap. Through it all, the Countess ate her dinner. Anna was only released when she was ordered to clear the table. She clasped the plates with quivering hands, holding back tears until she made it back to her room. Anna's fingers bled the rest of the night. She balled her hands into fists to try to slow the bleeding, but it did not help. Tired and in pain, Anna tore strips of her nightgown into bandages and bound her hands. The next day, the Countess told her to remove them during lessons. She was not allowed to hide the consequences of her actions. Tears filled her eyes throughout the lesson, but she refused to make a sound. It was her only form of rebellion. Luckily, after this, her medical training got back on track. Perhaps that would be the worst of it. She was given a medical task for the day, to assist in sewing up a wound in the stables. The loud, uneven neighs of a dying horse greeted her as she opened the barn doors. She moved to start closing the large wound in its belly, but another pair of hands stopped her. A nervous boy, Jakob, only a handful of years older than her, told her that they hadn't finished with him yet. Anna was confused. The horse didn't appear to be a him. But then she saw who Jakob was referring to. The collapsed body of a 10-year-old boy lay nearby, blood leaking from every limb. Large holes dotted his skin. He was near death, Jakob admitted. 
but the task was not done. Yaka brought the horse down on its side. He carried the boy over. Anna watched in silent shock as Jakob placed the boy's body inside the stomach cavity of the horse. Jakob told her to start sewing. She froze. Every impulse she had told her to do something, to stop them, to scream for help, to take the boy and run. But the stable master was watching. The countess would be by soon, he said. She wouldn't tolerate delays. Anna did as she was asked, trying to fight the nausea in her own stomach. Jakob's hands covered hers again as she went to close up the hole. The Countess's orders had been very clear. The boy's head was to stick out, to allow him to witness the sneering looks from other people as he died. Anna accidentally sent the needle through her own hand. She pulled it out slowly, wincing. The pain was nothing compared to the nightmare that her reality had become. Her hands shook as she worked through the last few stitches, still bloody fingertips sticking to each other clumsily. The boy had been silent the whole time, already half dead, just waiting for the spirits to take the rest of him, to finally set him free from the cruelties of the Countess. The stable hands carried Anna back to the main house before she could confirm that his suffering had ended. That night, dinner was sausages made from fresh horse meat. Anna had no appetite. In the middle of the night, she whispered to the spirits that had spoken to her. She asked if this was what they had been warning her about. She should have listened to them. She should have fled into the night. Death in the inky depths of the forest would be better than this. A cold, dark laugh greeted her. Its words made Anna's heart go cold. The voice said, No one ever leaves the castle grounds alive unless the Countess wishes it so. She didn't sleep that night. The boy's desperate gaze haunted her every time she closed her eyes. Some unknown girl's laughter echoed in her ears. There was no escape from her own reality. She was but a pawn. The Countess collected her kind by the hundreds, all to be used and disposed of at a whim. The Countess paid Anna no attention the next day, Anna faded into the background of her lessons and did her chores quietly. She did not dare to do anything that would make her noticeable. She wanted to be a fly in the wall, buzzing so faintly that you might not even realize it was there. But she could not avoid the Countess's gaze for long. With winter coming, the Countess wanted the girls to collect more food for the castle. They were sent outside in pairs, their thin coats billowing in the frigid air. They searched the shriveling forest for mushrooms, nuts, and berries. Anna and her partner filled their baskets to the brim, darting in and out of the castle grounds to get what they could. She didn't want to return to the castle. She wanted to linger outside until dusk fell. 
but her partner wouldn't let her. Several pairs of girls were missing when the two of them trudged back inside. They wiped their boots clean of snow and muck. The Countess wanted all items brought down to the kitchen. The cook looked at Anna's basket with dismay. She asked if Anna was hiding any food on her person. Anna would never be so rash. Not when the cost was so great. The cook sighed, whispering an apology. Two servants grabbed Anna and held her in place, just like they had the night before. She prepared for the sting of the nettle again. But this time, her hand was laid flat on the counter. The cook raised his knife and brought it down across her fingers. Anna lost sight of the room for a moment as the pain exploded through her hand. The cook mumbled another apology, but his words were toneless, like he also was dead inside. When Anna could finally look, she tried to steal herself so she would not be sick. It didn't help. Her hand was bleeding, but it didn't look or feel like hers. Her knuckles ended in tiny bumps, a clean cut, the cook's only kindness. They pulled the bones from her severed fingers, leaving little pieces of meat. The cook mixed them into the mince. The girl beside her, her partner, was next. The knife came down again. Another student came to collect them eventually, bandaging their hands. She said they were lucky they got to keep their lives. Hours passed before Anna was called for dinner. She looked down at the sausages. She wondered, with a chill, which parts of the ground meat were made of her own flesh. All the crimes depicted in the preceding story have been attributed to Elizabeth Bathory by members of her own household. These witnesses say that she began by targeting the women and children that had no legal protection, from the peasants on her feudal estates to kidnapped Romani children, subjecting them to mutilation, sexual abuse, and other forms of torture for her entertainment and curiosity and no one was around to check her power. Count Ferenc Nadoshti contracted a mysterious illness while abroad and passed away in 1604. His heir, nine-year-old Pal, was too young to take his father's place, so Elizabeth continued to rule over the estate. Elizabeth's older daughters were quickly married off in turn. Soon, it was only her, her young son, and her servants in the medieval fortress. And Elizabeth's hunger for violence only grew. She established a school for etiquette in 1609. The daughters of her wealthy contemporaries came from far and wide to learn from the well-pedigreed countess, only to suffer and die at her hand. This is perhaps why some of the most common apparitions reported at Chaktit's castle are weeping girls. If the stories are to be believed, her tenure as the head of the school is when Elizabeth truly earned her name as the Blood Countess. She would become one of the most prolific serial killers the world has ever seen.
Up next, the Blood Countess comes after her own. Now, back to the story. It was horrifyingly common for feudal lords to torture the peasants living and working beneath them within the feudal system. Kidnapping, assault, and sexual abuse were rampant, and there was no recourse for victims. Elizabeth Bathory and her husband Ferenc Nadezhdi viewed this abuse as a kind of science experiment, seeing how much their victims could take and how long they could take it. Torturing not to maintain order, but to revel in chaos. But even their level of creativity and obsession wasn't enough to draw attention and intervention of the Hungarian crown. Without any obstacle, their Czech castle became a house of horrors for the peasants living nearby and within it. In fact, it was very possible that Bathory would have entirely escaped any sort of repercussions if she hadn't made one fatal mistake. In her zealousness and curiosity, she began to target everyone, including her noble peers. Andrash smiled as the scream of bone horns signified the first death in a hunt, the death of civility. They no longer had to pretend that they were the upstanding people the peasants looked up to. They could indulge in their impulses, kill for sport and pleasure, and all of their secrets would stay hidden in the woods and feasting hall. He loved the thrill of the chase. His blood would surge as he and his dogs ran down some frightened creature. He liked to kill with his knife, feel the flesh tear apart, let the blood drip down his fingers. If he was quick enough, he could catch the last few throbs of the animal's veins. It was satisfying, beautiful, in a way he could never explain to his wife or children. It had been several weeks since he'd last been able to hunt. He missed it. He said as much at supper, and the Countess had been kind enough to grant his request the very next morning. She smirked mysteriously, saying there might be some unusual creatures on her grounds. He was welcome to keep whatever he caught. Her family's coat of arms had three dragon teeth on it to memorialize the great monster that had supposedly been slain by her ancestors. But Andras didn't believe in dragons. The Countess could keep her superstitions. He hunted for more tangible creatures, deer, boar, and the occasional sheep. He let the dogs loose on the damp soil. Early morning fog hid the tall spires of the castle. For a moment, it was as though he was the only human alive, the earth rich with spoils, just for him. The dogs chased after a scent, and Andras followed close behind. He could hear the soft scuffling of hooves on dirt. Something had heard the bone horn, or the snarls of his hungry dogs. It was scared. Andras spied dark brown fur through the trees. He waited for the dogs to follow after it, but they were going in a different direction. He caught up to one of them, nudging it with his leg, but they would not be moved. They were sniffing at the ground, attacking the surface with their paws. They must have detected a rat or a vole, some small prey that was barely even worth the effort of killing. 
Andrash wanted something bigger. He dragged one of the dogs away from the scent, but it kept returning. Frustrated, he let the dog paw at the soil. Once it found its prey, they could get back to their real prize. A flash of red caught his attention. It was faint, barely peeking through the dark earth. But it was like no animal hide he had ever seen. Maybe the Countess hadn't been superstitious at all. They could be sitting on top of the burial pit of some strange creature. He knelt low to the ground as the dogs kept attacking the earth. There was fresh blood on their paws. This was a recent kill, maybe only a few hours old. They kept digging, digging, digging. As more dirt arched through the air, something white caught his eye. Human fingers, frozen, immobile, curled as if trying to claw out of the soil. The skin was nearly purple with an almost waxy sheen to its surface. The red fur hadn't been fur at all, but hair, the hair of a young woman, too young. He turned his head away from the hand and expelled the remains of his breakfast from his body. When his roiling stomach started to still, he turned back to the carcass. The dogs were still trying to unearth it, their teeth gripping the skin near her shoulder and pulling, tearing. Her eyes were glassy, staring up, but not seeing anything. The townspeople buried their dead in a graveyard several miles away. Noblemen were sent back home. He did not know who this girl could be or why she was buried in this anonymous patch of land. Andrash tried to stop his dogs from disturbing the corpse further. He gripped her arm in one hand and tried to pull the dog's mouth from it. The dog snapped at him, drawing blood. As soon as his hand was out of the way, the dog went back to the girl. The other hound had cleared more of the girl's body. Her skin was pale and unblemished. What remained of her clothes were more than just peasant rags. They were silks and furs. She was of high birth. She did not belong in some pit. Andrash grabbed onto a lower part of the girl's arm. Her body was still warm in spots. He'd been right earlier. It was a fresh kill. His strength overpowered the dog's grip on her, tearing the dog's teeth from their grip on her arm. A low moan slipped past her lips. Andrash kept walking. The body could do strange things as the soul left it. But it groaned again and again. She was still alive. The dogs barked and nipped at his legs as he stopped and lifted the girl in his arms. If she was alive, he would have to take care with her body. Andrash made the trek back to the castle slowly. She was lighter than a girl should be. He could almost feel her bones through her clothes. She was so fragile. Nothing like the animals he hunted, their veins pulsing with life. 
he could barely feel her pulse at all. The guards gave him soft smiles as he carried the girl through the gates and asked for healing and an audience with the Countess. But the healers didn't come. They made him wait nearly an hour in an antechamber, the girl clinging to life in his arms. Finally, the Countess agreed to see him. He kept the girl with him, her breaths growing fainter as he walked toward the Countess. Rather than comment on the girl, the Countess asked if he found his hunt to be enjoyable. Andrash told her that he'd been distracted. This was a girl from a noble family. Someone had tried to cover their sins with a smattering of dirt, but it hadn't been enough. His dogs had found her before the hunt had even begun. They needed to save her however they could and find out who was responsible for this outrage. The Countess shook her head softly. There was nothing to be done for the girl. The family had been compensated. Andrash didn't understand. The Countess offered to go hunting with him next time. She had not known what his preferences would be, so she'd simply left her own spoils for him to find. He'd done well for someone with so little experience, but she had done most of the work for him. The girl had been tortured for days before finding her way outside the castle walls. The Countess followed her to see how far she would get. Less than a mile out, the girl collapsed. It was disappointing but this was how they learned. They would leave more vigor in the next one before sending her off into the woods. If there was anything left in his stomach, Andrash would have been tempted to throw up again. The Countess was so pleased with herself, so excited to share in her own game. She smiled at him softly, told him he would get used to it. Enjoy the hunt and the chase once more. After all, there was no better prey than a fellow human. The Blood Countess became more and more brazen after the death of her husband in 1604. She transferred her violence to the daughters of lesser nobles and left the bodies of her victims out to rot, apparently studying both the process of death and decomposition. This took Chaktit's castle from a house of secrets to a house of horrors. But Elizabeth's position as one of the richest and most powerful noble women in Europe protected her. In 1610, Elizabeth Bathory's own son-in-law recalled that his hounds unearthed several groups of human remains during a hunt the Countess herself had organized. It's no wonder she was sometimes called the Vampire Countess. Whether the rumors of her and her late husband seeking out alchemists and occultists were true or not, she had an almost supernatural ability to escape any kind of punishment, and her reported cruelty knew no bounds. It seemed the sun would never rise on Chaktit's castle, but dawn did come eventually, and all her ugliness was laid bare. Coming up, the authorities catch up to the Blood Countess. 
but justice may be just as cruel as her actions. Now, back to the story. It took six years after the death of Ferenc Nadeshdi in 1604 for the whispers about Elizabeth Bathory's proclivities to make their way to King Matthias II of Hungary. King Matthias dispatched his palatine, a kind of prime minister to Chaktitz, to disprove the rumors. Elizabeth, after all, was related to multiple European royal families. Her supposed ultra-violence and obsession with the occult would not play well with a world that was undergoing both religious wars and conversations about the inherited rights or merits of rulers. It was a delicate investigation, but whatever the Palatine Gerge Terzo imagined, what his witnesses told him was so much worse. Gerge Terzo was a very busy man. As the right hand of Matthias of Austria, the Holy Roman Emperor, he helped his liege in constant battle against the Ottomans. The Bathory lands were supposed to be a smaller province, left to their own governance, so the emperor could direct his attention to more important things. They were trustworthy. A member of the Bathory family had even been appointed as the King of Poland. But then, Elizabeth Bathory had apparently lost her mind, and Turzo needed to step in and solve the problem, quickly and quietly to avoid embarrassment to more than one European monarch. But screams were hard to silence. Turzo began by collecting testimony from the lands around Chaktit's castle. Austrian nobles came to him, speaking in frightened whispers of the Countess's torture of her servants and peasants. Her own family was turning against her. Turzo was no stranger to these types of squabbles, especially when significant wealth was involved. Elizabeth was quite terse in all her correspondence and thought nothing of dressing down the men in her circle, both in her family and outside it. He hoped that a visit to Chaktit's castle was all it would take, a gentle reminder to play nice and he could get back to more important matters. He and his retinue were let into the main hall without delay, a blessing considering the heavy late December snow. The Countess offered to give him a tour, but he waved off her hospitality. They would perform their due diligence examining the castle and then return to her to address the charges levied against her. Elizabeth smiled serenely, nodded respectfully. Of course, Palatine. Whatever you need, Palatine. You honor us with your presence, Palatine. She was still uttering thanks as he left the hall, flanked by two of his men. The next corridor was dark, lit by two emaciated torches at the very end of the passage. They stepped forward, only to hear a quiet moan from behind the stones. Turzo turned his head, searching for the sound, but it had ceased. The air in front of him was deathly cold, even as he neared the torch. But there it was again, a young girl weeping. She sounded like she was right in front of them, struggling against bonds they could not see. Torso took the torch from the wall, stepping forward to illuminate the dark void. But nothing was there. The girl was definitely beside them, 
Turzo swung the torch again, nearly slamming into a small wooden door hidden in the darkness. It was locked. The girl moaned again. He told his men to break it down. She was a ghost. Or at least that's what she appeared to be at first, hovering in front of them, arms spread wide. Skin so pale, it was almost see-through. Blood dripping down into a dark wooden tub, like unholy red wine. He didn't move for a moment, waiting for some sign that she was merely a vision, a suggestion of the dark. But then she breathed again. The blood flowed. She twitched. Turzo suddenly realized she was no floating phantasm. The source of the sound was a flesh-and-blood wretch mounted on the wall, no more than 13 years old. His men rushed forward, freeing the girl with as much care and caution as they dared. Turzo told his remaining men to spread out. There were bodies everywhere, in the castle and on the grounds, some moving, some not. When he asked her if she had carried out these horrors, Bathory smiled. All deference to him, gone. Of course I did, Palatine. Whatever I need, Palatine. A parade of witnesses, maidservants, parish priests, horrified visiting nobles, they all condemned the Countess. They reported horrific tortures and experiments, Preteen girls covered in honey and consumed by ants. Poor souls burned with a hot iron before being soaked to the skin and left out in the December snow. The emperor opted to keep Countess Bathory from the public eye. She was confined to Chakteet's castle, awaiting her fate. Two weeks after his first grisly discovery, Turzo visited Bathory in her fortress-turned-prison to tell her she would never leave her stone room again. But something bothered him, a question that only Bathory could answer. Why hadn't she hidden the bodies, kept him from discovering her crimes? She smiled again, a thin, dark smile. There was no point, she answered. Truzo couldn't contain his outrage. How could she be so brazen? How could she sully the nobility, human decency, the mandate of God himself? She replied that it didn't matter where she put them. At first, she thought her servants were disobeying. She killed a few to make her point, but it kept happening. No matter where she buried them, the girls always came back, crying, screaming, writhing. She saw them in the stables, in the halls, in the bedrooms, in the food she ate and the wine she drank. She did not seem to be disturbed or scared by this, only matter of fact. Truzo asked her if she knew she was being haunted, that her confinement in the tower room would mean she had no escape, no way to evade her victims. Why would I want to evade them? The Blood Countess asked. They're mine, after all. 
Some say that Turzo and King Matthias framed Elizabeth to gain ownership of her lands. However, several historians point out that a charge of witchcraft would have been a far more effective and less embarrassing accusation to level against a Renaissance celebrity like Elizabeth Bathory. Bathory herself never actually testified in her own trial. Many of her maidservants were forced to act as witnesses instead, confessing under torture to hundreds of crimes in vivid and horrifying detail. The Countess was declared legally dead by the court. Her estates were divided between her children, and she was condemned to solitary confinement in Chaktit's castle. Apocryphal reports say that Elizabeth Bathory never saw another living soul. Her meals and other necessities passed through a small slit in the door. She would live for four years in captivity before passing away in August of 1614. It is said that she was buried in the churchyard of the Chaktit's chapel, but that the locals demanded the so-called Tigress of Chaktit's to be removed from the village she terrorized. She was likely moved to one of several Bathory family vaults, but the final resting place of her body remains unknown. Aside from the weeping girls, the Countess is the castle's most reported ghost. Many have approached a strange figure in Renaissance dress from behind, only to discover that she is utterly faceless before she disappears into thin air. One last punishment for the murderess. If she was killing virgins to maintain her appearance, ultimately, it did not matter. Even her spectral form is denied the ageless visage she so desperately sought. Today, Chaktit's castle is a ruin. The few remaining bits of interior decoration, a series of three painted wooden panels, have been brought inside the town's cathedral. The site is now a major tourist destination in Slovakia. Though opinions on the matter are complicated, the older citizens of Chaktit's hate Elizabeth Bathory as much as their ancestors did. But the younger ones see her as an opportunity for much-needed economic growth in the region. Their push for greater tourism led to the commission of a statue of the Countess, which the older locals still consider to be in exceedingly poor taste. Perhaps the best example of the complicated nature of Elizabeth Bathory's legacy comes in the branding of the local winery. Their fine selection of deep reds boasts a Bathory blood label. It's been over 400 years since Elizabeth Bathory passed away in the darkness of Chaktit's castle. You may believe the numbers reported to the Hungarian crown or view her as only a slightly more violent than usual member of the European gentry. Still, it is impossible to deny that blood has stained the grounds of Chaktit's. It is never more apparent than when you stand on the hills overlooking it. When there's no one around, all you can hear is the sound of the wind. But soon, you realize it's not the wind at all. It's the weeping of women and girls, long dead. Hundreds of them wailing around you. The echoes of violence reaching across centuries, yearning to claim another victim. 
Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Chocteet's Castle, among the many sources we used, we found the reporting of Vice and the writing of Andre Codresco extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>